And if I haven't met you individually, or if maybe you're here, this is my third or fourth time, maybe, I don't know, maybe Oscar would probably know better than me, something in that range. So happy to be back. I love being here. It's a privilege and an honor. Um, in your bulletin is a second passage we'll look at in Matthew. We're going to start in Genesis 1. So why don't you go ahead and put your finger there first. We'll flip over later into the Matthew passage towards the end. Um, what we're going to be talking about this morning is work. For now, I want the term to be ambiguous. I don't want to define it yet. That's one of the things that we're going to do is allow the Bible to define it. There's all kinds of ways when I mention work, there's things that flood into your minds that are mostly probably predominantly from our culture or from your own daily experience. And what we want is to try to think through what does the Bible say about work? What does the Bible teach about work? And how can we go into the tasks God has called us this next week uh, with a little clearer sight uh, based upon uh, God's Word. Before we even do that, let's ask for His help. Um, what we would do in the next 35 to 40 minutes will be fruitless apart from the work of the Spirit. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we go now to Your Word. We pray that You would help us to not only understand it, but that it would... Uh, that you would help us to apply it individually and specifically to each of us individually in our homes, in the way we relate to our employers, the way that we relate to all of the other authorities that stand over us, including our government, both local and um, national. Uh, we need your help. And just then we pray. Amen. So when I was a full-time professor at Bible, and I teach as an adjunct and work, like most of you, in non-ministry-related field. Um, when I was a full-time professor at Biola for about 10 years, I regularly taught a senior-level class that was an integration seminar on the theology of work. Actually, Oscar took that class. I knew that he had, but until he reminded me this morning, I was like, oh, I hadn't connected those dots and so, until you came up. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh, that's right. I remember he was in that class. So, Basically, the origins of this particular sermon was earlier this summer, one of my friends who pastors in South Orange County was, it's a nice sermon series. He was going away for sabbatical, so he was creating some other people to come fill in his pulpit. And he was doing a series of the way that you interact with Jesus should affect all these different things. I think it was eight different sermons. One of them was retirement. One of them was work. One of them was marriage. You guys are doing the marriage stuff, even in your Sunday school class. Uh, one of them was leisure and a number of different sort of daily activities. So he asked me to come and sort of think through, help the church consider being a follower of Christ. How does that affect the way that we think about work? So I was able to rekindle some of my old notes, things that I hadn't thought about in some time. Some of, the, some of these things are things I think about in my own work, basically daily. Um, and so my prayer is that as I went through, I don't know how many hours of material for you know, a three-unit course to try to summarize it into 40 minutes, it was, it was definitely a pain. I thought it was going to be an easy process. Oh, I know a lot about this, but it actually was the opposite because it's like, man, I got to chop and move a bunch of stuff away. But Lord willing, I, I'm, we're, we're landing on a few 
things we can walk away with that will be helpful, but there's so many other things to say. And even the title I realized that I gave Jason is somewhat misleading, what the Bible says about work, because we're only going to look at two passages. Obviously, the Bible says a lot more about work than two passages that we could glean from, and I have some of them in my notes. Um, one of the mistakes I made in, in South Orange County is I tried to do way more passages, and the sermon got a little too long. So I will, I, I've already trimmed in my mind how that's going to work, so you guys won't have to endure all that. So here's the first thing. There's no doubt that our worldview should affect the way that we think about everything, but specifically the things we do every day, like our work. And we as Christians have, throughout our history, at various times, done sometimes a better job of allowing our worldview to impact the way that we work and labor. And sometimes we've done a worse job as Christians as the whole. Let me give two relatively extreme examples to make my point. Many of us will know, because we're in this area, in the 1950s, literally I think it's 50 or 51, is when the L.A. Crusades by Billy Graham kind of hit the national scene. Billy Graham became basically a celebrity by setting up a tent in downtown L.A., and many, many people came to Jesus. He stayed there for many more weeks than he intended, and, and it, was, it was covered by the national news in a way that today... Is almost unheard of, but in the 1950, it was not uncommon. One of the people who came to the crusade was the local Los Angeles gangster, a member of organized crime named Mickey Cohen. And Billy Graham became friends with Mickey Cohen, obviously trying to evangelize him, trying to be, have him, help him become a Christian. Later, a couple years later, Mickey Cohen ends up in prison. Billy Graham visits him in prison. Mickey Cohen, a number of years later, comes out of prison. Billy Graham continues a relationship with him. And this whole relationship was tracked by the national media to the point that in 1957, so this would have been seven years after this friendship had started, some newspaper asked Mickey Cohen, are you going to become a Christian? One of his friends, actually a lawyer that worked with Mickey Cohen, did become a Christian at the crusade, which is pretty awesome and remarkable. And Mickey Cohen somewhat tongue-in-cheek, this was his answer. It's quoted in the newspaper. Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politician, why not a Christian gangster? We can actually laugh about that. That's a little bit silly, right? Certainly not every single profession could we attach Christian in front of legitimately. Surely there are some professions that are out of bounds of you being able to do as a Christian, right? I think a member of organized crime is a good example of one of those you can't just say oh yeah you're a christian school teacher i'm a christian murderer or something like that right there are certain things that are out of bounds of that being the designator and he kind of play, was playing on that never became a christian from what we knew uh, continued a relationship with billy graham up until i think mickey cohen's death but here's another extreme and this one's more prevalent at least at a sub slice of christian history, and that is written into the very uh, founding documents of what once was, for many years, the largest abbey in France, at that point really the largest Christian abbey in the world. Um, the, the person who gave the money, owned the land, and established by his hand the Cluny Monastery writes a letter that's a charter to it. And I'm going to read portions of it, but I want you to be looking at it for now because you're going to see another vice, another excess, another wrong way of thinking about how 
Christianity affects our labor. The key point being that the, uh, the, the magistrate who had this was wealthy, was responsible over many people, was essentially a, a, a merchant of success in his day. So here's what he says in the charter for this monastery. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to read a couple of pieces. To all right thinkers, it is clear that the providence of God has so provided for certain rich men that by means of their possessions, if they use them well, they may be able to merit everlasting rewards. So we should be a little bit like, what? Well, so he's talking about rich people, if they use their possessions, might be able to merit everlasting rewards. There's a way he might be able to pull that nose, <laughs> that, that, the, pull the nose on that airplane, but he doesn't. See what it says. This is pre-Reformation, obviously. I should support, this is what his conclusion was, so I skipped a little bit. I decided that I should support, at my own expense, a congregation of monks. And this is my trust. This is my hope. Indeed, that although I myself am unable to despise all things, nevertheless, by receiving the despisers of this world, whom I believe to be righteous, I may receive the reward of the righteous. Let me parse that out a little bit because we're talking about, yes, it's a translation from France. Essentially, he's saying, I'm a merchant, I'm busy, I have many responsibilities. Because I have this job, I can't despise the world. Now, what does he mean by despise the world? Well, he doesn't mean what we think of as, yes, we should despise the sinful elements of the world, turn our backs from them, and engage in God's world in ways that are redemptive. He literally means by that, I can't turn my back on my work. There's too many people depending upon me. I can't become a monk. That's what he's saying, right? To despise the world by what he's saying is to join a monastery. I can't join a monastery Take a vow of celibacy. Take a vow of poverty, right? I have too many responsibilities. And because I can't do that, he literally believes, right? This is, this is the teaching of the day, that his everlasting state was hopeless because he was wealthy, because he was busy, because he was a merchant. Oh, I have an idea. Here's my idea. Because I can't become a monk, I could give a bunch of money, build a big building, put a bunch of monks in that building and they can despise the world and I will receive the benefits. It's called the treasury of merit. It's actually, there's lots of theology in the pre-Reformation church about this, that these righteous people, by their prayers and by their turning their backs on possessions, they could somehow build a treasury of merit that could then be applied to my account because he used his wealth in that way. Isn't that heartbreaking? The most heartbreaking part about it. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it should bring up some sort of like uh, some anti-gospel righteous anger in us as well. But the primary thing that I get out of is just sadness. I'm very sad for this person when he says, this is my trust. This is my hope, <laughs> right? The kind of language we use for the gospel and for the work of Jesus. He's placing in his own work and his own money and his sacrifice to be able to earn righteousness by employing those who will pray for him. Heartbreaking. Of course, that's, you know, over a thousand years ago. What about now? And I think one of the reasons that I, I think this is a, a subject that's worth spending our time talking about is here we have 
Protestant, people who have understood, that's why you're here, the gospel, like you want the Bible to, to be lived out in your daily lives. And even the, in our sort of world, our sort of circles, I still think there are some of us that at times struggle with, how does my job tomorrow, Monday morning at 8 a.m. relate it all to the gospel or to the Bible? Because some of you would say, well, my day tomorrow, it's after a long weekend, I'm probably just going to respond to email all day. How does that relate to the gospel? Or somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to sit down and open a spreadsheet, the same one I've been working on for three weeks, and I'm going to just be plugging away at a spreadsheet. Some of you are going to say, maybe not this week, but a couple weeks from now, I will return to a classroom where I will teach a room full of bratty to second graders. You probably Those who are called to teach never call their students bratty, but... I'm called to teach this unruly group of kids in a public school. How am I supposed to view or to do that as a Christian? And that's where we want to land on. So the very first thing I want us to do is, is we're going to just allow, what does our worldview say about it? And then we're going to go to a specific command of Jesus and what it says about it. So it's really just two points that we're going for. Uh, try to be minimal with, with what our aspirations are. Uh, the first is in Genesis 1, from the very outset, I think that... You, in Genesis 1 and 2, even before we get to the fall in Genesis 3, we can learn much about what the Bible says about work that stands in stark opposition to much of what our, much of what our culture says about work. So let's just read a little bit, kind of start pulling it apart a little bit, create some landing spots. The first thing that we see in Genesis 1 is God is introduced to us as an active God, Right? The kinds of activities that God is taking upon himself, I'm going to pull this down just slightly because I've hit it a couple of times already. Look at the words that are used already in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3 comes down and talks about God speaking, God speaking things into existence, God seeing in verse 4, God calling in verse 5, right? So he's separating the activities that God is introduced to us from the very beginning pages of scripture are God is an active God. He is creating order out of chaos. He is separating things. He is naming things. These are all activities that you can really realize. Well, those are essentially lack of a better term work. God is presented from the very start of the scripture as a working God. And God is presented from the very start of the scripture as an active God. Jesus even said, my father has been working up until now, and even now I am working, right? So God is described not as the God who only sits in heaven and expects everyone to serve him. It's a stark opposition to the view of the gods that you have in the Roman and the Greek pantheon, right? So think about the Roman gods and the Greek gods and what the stories that the Greeks told us about those gods, what did they do all day? They just kind of sat around heaven in states of leisure, drinking wine and ultimately getting bored and coming to the earth and causing problems. That's really essentially the theology summarized of the pantheon of gods. Which is why in Roman culture, let's just say, for example, the greatest good was leisure. Aristotle even says... Uh, we should be like the gods insofar as we're able, right? 
So that's a Greek mindset that's crept into the Roman worldview and says, well, if the gods are all about leisure, then we should be all about leisure. And how dare we put ourselves under labor? Which brings about slavery and all kinds of other horrible things, right? If, if labor is below the gods, it should be below me and I'm going to employ other people to do it by whatever means that I must. My point being, that is not what we see in Scripture. We don't see a God whose greatest good is leisure. We see a God who's all about activity and work from the very start. So we could call that supposedly our, properly speaking, our theology as far as literally what we know about God, about work in this particular passage. But right off in the heels of that, we get our anthropology. We see what the Bible presents humans as because God presents Adam and Eve as humans primarily to be workers, in a very similar regard to he is. So skip down in chapter 1 to 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28, he blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We have God's creation, uncorrupted by the fall yet, pops in humans into that creation and immediately gives them a task, right? They have a job. They're going to be caretakers of that creation. Some people like to call it the creation mandate. We're going to flirt a little bit later with how that can sometimes be abused in a way that's unhelpful. But at least for now, it's like, okay, they're, they're given a mandate out of creation, and their creation mandate is to fill the earth and subdue it. Take care of this place that God has created. So once again, two, ap two applications we can walk away with right off is work can't be bad. It's not a necessary evil. My guess is if there were an American or maybe Western theology, for lack of a better term, sociological understanding of work, it would be work is a necessary evil. Whatever way that spins into, right? It could be a capitalistic nation. It could be a socialistic nation notion. Either way, it's sort of like work is a necessary evil, something we have to do until we can retire or live in leisure, or have enough money where we no longer have to work. But that stands in contrast to the very fact that God created Adam and Eve for work. Work can't be bad if God the Father is presented as a worker, and if his first created beings before the fall are said to be workers. Now, of course, of course, we're in utopia right now, right? We're in the garden. We haven't even had sin come. And so if it would be wrong for me to stop now and say, hey, that's what the Bible says about work. We're two chapters in. <laughs> Go and do likewise. Because there's a huge piece of the story that comes in Genesis 3 that affects everything. And even something as what we might think of as mundane as work. One implication right now, I'll, I'll tie it to now, is one of the things we think of when we think about work is those things necessarily that people pay us for or we make money from. 
But we already see, okay, well, that's probably not a real helpful way to think about it. When we get to some of the stuff we're going to talk about Martin Luther a little bit at the end, he helps with this term called vocations or callings, that there are a lot of work that any of us do that are not something that we are paid to do, right? It's a part of our responsibility from, say, being a husband or being a parent or being a citizen, and so God doesn't get paid for his work. Adam and Eve didn't fill out a W-2, right, before they took upon themselves this task. So work is activity done in relationship with others, right? In God, it's an inter-Trinitarian relationship. With Adam and Eve, it's, it's a relationship with each other, a relationship under the lordship of the Father, and a relationship over the creation. So work is activity done in relationship with others for the benefit of others. I mean, we see that. We can kind of piece it together. This is kind of what theology is, right? Theology is trying to take the Bible as it comes to us and trying to like summarize it and say, okay, what is really being said here? And so work need not have anything to do with any sort of monetary payment at all. It could be activity done in relationship with others for the benefit of others, which is a pretty broad category but I think that if we thought about it, we'd realize it captures it pretty well. But, story don't end there. Adam and Eve, primarily because of not perhaps being fully satisfied with their role of being under the authority, right? Maybe they, it seems like, wanted to kind of doubt that authority through the serpent's temptation or suggest maybe that that authority was not looking out for them. And so then you have this horrendous effect that comes about because of sin. And interestingly, because we're only specifically thinking about work here, the effects of the fall as spoken by God to primarily Adam and Eve, the serpent before that, uh, that work mandate that they were given is now going to be made more difficult because of sin, right? Creation mandate, fill the earth. Oh, now the practice of filling the earth is going to be in pain, in childbirth. Subdue the earth. Oh, now that activity of subduing the earth is going to be more difficult. There's, there's thorns and thistles now. There's going to be a more difficult test. By the sweat of your brow, you will do that now. So no doubt, we tend to think of work as primarily the result of the fall, but that's not true. They had a job before the fall, but the excesses of work, the sinfulness of work, the problems that come about with work, that is a result of the fall. Just like so many other good things. That's just what sin does, right? Sin takes good things and distorts them to the point that it's hard to even believe that they're good anymore. Human sexuality is a good thing given to us by God. They get so distorted by so many different sinful things to the point that some of us, some of us even like, it's sometimes hard to remind ourselves, oh no, no, sexuality is a good thing given to us by God in the proper context. Work is the same thing. It's a good thing given to us by God in the proper context, but boy has sin affected that. Laziness is a sinful attribute of work. We could go to many passages, particularly in the New Testament, where the Bible doesn't pull any punches on how to treat lazy people, right? Overwork, finding your identity in work, work becoming an idol is the effect of a fall. 
man, I, I haven't been a full-time college professor for about 10 years, eight, eight to 10 years now. But when I was, I didn't even see it. I was blind to how much I loved being a professor. What an idol that was. And now I work in sales, and sometimes after successful seasons, I, have, I see that same magnet being pulled a little bit, like, man, you're good at this, too. And I, now I see it a little, part of it's just God's grace, you know, walking in sanctification. It's all these little tiny things. So it's like, oh, I'm a little more sanctified now. I see that idolatry. I see myself being, being pulled to the magnet of wanting to find my, my identity in my work and therefore overworking and neglecting some of my other responsibilities to maybe my wife or to my family because I want so badly to follow that idol of finding myself meaningful in my work. I was uh, laughing with your pastor about Martin Lloyd-Jones. I believe it was a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote that he's, he said that at some, uh, as a pastor in the United Kingdom, uh, there are some funerals that he could stand up and say, this person was born a man but died a profession, doctor, pastor, professor, or whatever it is, right? And that just shows the idolatry, right? We were born humans, but through our life, the idolatry of wanting to find our identity and our work to the point that it's, it's evil and it's bad and it's not good and we need to confess that and we need to repent that and we need to be comfortable because sometimes God will remove our idols from us, right? And help us to see that we, He is enough. And we're thankful for when God does that exact thing because to walk in idolatry blindly is, is, is very dangerous. So work comes in. It changes everything. It affects the mandate. It causes now the issue of what looked to be, oh, this is work now. Work is constantly mangled, constantly twisted with sin, with selfishness. If work is activity done in community for the benefit of others, well, now our community even is affected because we work alongside other sinful people. We work for sinful people. Our companies are owned by sinful people. If we have authority over others, they're sinful people. It makes work difficult. Not impossible, but it makes work difficult, which actually highlights for us exactly the redemptive process of what work can be as a Christian, which we'll, we'll lean into a little bit more at the end. So we've talked about work in its original state. We've talked about work after the fall. That's the one we find ourselves in now. And before I kind of cash it out with a little bit more practicality, I just want to hint at an interesting passage. Those of you who, it's not all of you, some of you love this kind of stuff. There's a passage that's primarily should be interpreted, I believe, in some sort of eschatological framework, some sort of not yet, like an already not yet, from Isaiah 2. But I just want to bring it out to talk about what it says about work, because it's super interesting. So in Isaiah 2, we're not going to flip to it, but you can just write it down, those of you who are interested in this kind of thing. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And Isaiah says that we're going to... I just want to read it so I don't misquote it, because I've got it right here. He will judge between nations... He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's interesting. I'm not going to say much about this. But in the new heavens and the new earth, in the future, however that looks, Isaiah is pointing out, okay, well, there's no more war. That makes sense. There's no more war when there's no more sin. 
But is there no more work? No, it seems to be saying there'll be farming. We're going we're to turn tools of warfare into tools of work. So we don't need army tanks anymore, but we're going to turn them into John Deere tractors, apparently, or something like that, right? We don't need machine guns anymore, but we're going to start using them to cultivate crops. So I'm just going to drop that in your drink and let you kind of think about what to do with that one later. Ask your, ask, ask your pastor and Oscar about that one, because I don't even, I don't know what to do with it for sure, but there's certainly something to be done with it, that in the new heavens and the new earth, some of this sort of makes sense. If pre-fall garden, there was tasks to be done, then it sort of makes sense that in the new heavens and the new earth, some sort of similar activity in relationship with others for the benefit of others would still be at place. Okay, now let's turn to our Matthew passage. So it's in your bulletin, but it's Matthew 22. And I want to transition with this notion of some of you probably are even thinking this, because I know there's a lot of good theologians in this church. As soon as I mentioned the creation mandate, some of you probably already thought, okay, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous because how could the f- creation mandate still be applying when it was given to us pre-fall? And then didn't the fall change our mandate of how we're supposed to interact with our world so much that we can't even call it the creation mandate anymore? And I'm not even necessarily, I, I don't think I'm opposed to that as an ocean. But I do want to look at Christ's command here. But here, let's talk, let's dig a little bit around why that objection even exists. The objection exists for a very good reason. Here's why that objection exists. There are plenty of churches. I don't know your area of town as much as I know the other side of the hill. But we wouldn't have to drive far in any direction to find plenty of churches who would love to talk about being good citizens and being good workers and doing good that you'd have to sit there for a while, but then you realize at some point they're not really ever talking about sin and repentance and trusting the gospel. It's almost like the gospel has been completely replaced in many churches by what's called the social gospel. To love our neighbor is the only responsibility, and by loving our neighbor, it's always played out in this sort of not... Let me put it this way. It's not primarily taught that to love your neighbor is to help them realize that they are a sinner in need of the gospel, right? There's all these other things that might come about as play of loving our neighbor. And some of them sometimes are completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. Oh, love your neighbor by affirming them in their sin. Often, depending on where churches are on that spectrum, but that's not uncommon, right? So this nervousness about uh, bringing up something from Genesis 2, one, and sort of trying to just land it on our plates for now is is a nervousness we should be feeling as evangelicals. We are gospel proclaiming. We believe everything that's in the Bible. And we affect, yes, sin hurt our work, but boy, is that insignificant compared to what it did to our standing before God. And we are now unrighteous, unholy beings, right? So I don't want to suggest somehow that the fall only affected our work, right? Obviously, it damaged everything. And those Romans passages are fully true. There's no one who does right because of the fall. We're just emphasizing for the sake of what we'll want to accomplish with the last 
seven to 10 minutes thinking about our work specifically. So here's the passage that we're going to read in Matthew. Uh, this is a passage everyone's very familiar with. You probably have not thought of it in relation to work. There are many other passages, particularly in Paul, that specifically are applied to work. But this is one that I think does apply to work and will, I, I hope, encourage you daily in the way that it has me. I'm going to start in 34. When one of the Pharisees heard, this is in, in Matthew 22, one of the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So hopefully some of you are already thinking, Okay, well, I think I might know what he's going to do with this and how he's going to apply this to work. Um, Here's what we'll turn to Martin Luther. Martin Luther is, a, is an interesting help to our church on this sort of subject matter because think about Martin Luther's own life. He came out of the monastery, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid that only those of us who take these vows can really be righteous, which means the rest of you guys got no chance. My favorite part about Martin Luther is the primary thing that led all of him towards the Reformation was just reading his Bible, right? It was just like, just the more he read his Bible with, with, a, with a proper hermeneutic, we would say, with a proper understanding of really just trying to understand what the Bible says, that Romans opened his eyes to like, wait, 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 this whole idea of righteousness isn't, it's, it's not the right way to go, that righteousness is only something that Jesus can attain for us. So this wording even of despising the world and achieving righteousness that I read from that early charter, Martin Luther helps us to realize that's all misguided. That's not thinking properly about the way the Bible talks about this. In fact, none are righteous, even the monks who have taken the vows. Oh, but only Christ is righteous. And by faith in Christ, we can be righteous, even the wealthy merchants can share in Christ's righteousness. And that's the flip. So Luther says about this specific passage, he says, what is it that you did, let's say yesterday or last week, to fulfill that second part of the greatest commandment, to love your neighbor? What is it that you specifically have done to fulfill God's command to love your neighbor? And I hope all of us would say, okay, I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel. I'm looking for opportunities to invite people to church, to the home studies that we're doing, all that other stuff. And Luther would say, yes, that's good, but there's other things that you did to love your neighbor. And they're primarily defined by fulfilling those obligations and those callings that God has given you. Once again, we'll just pull apart that word callings just a little bit because Luther is really helpful. He, he, the wording that Luther uses is stations in life. So we have stations in life in relationship to our employer. It's the one we think about. We have stations in life in relationship to our family, right? We are all either sons or daughters, right? Maybe our parents are no longer living. Some of us are husbands or wives. Some of us are parents. We are all citizens, 
And each one of those stations in life, as soon as you just take that, it's like, okay, wait, if that's a part of my work, if being a husband is a part of my work, it's a part of my station in life, boy, the Bible has a lot to say about how I should be a husband, right? If being a father, I've got four kids, if being a father is part of my station in life, boy, does the Bible say a lot about being a father. Boy, does the Bible say a lot about being a citizen. Doesn't the Bible say a lot about all of these other things? And it also says a lot about how I should interact with the authorities that are over me. Some of those authorities might be governmental, and some of them might be employment authorities. So the station of life helps us to understand, okay, when we get to this part of, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself, Martin Luther helps us to realize the primary way that you're loving your neighbor is by doing your stations of life in a way that glorifies God. So if you're a second grade teacher, Whenever school starts next week, or for my, I have kids that are starting on Monday, so that probably is not too dissimilar from here. That day, the primary way that you're going to love your neighbor is by teaching those squirmy second graders and doing it well. And if you're opening a spreadsheet, right? And there's actually, there's some beautiful things here, right? That what are you doing when you open a spreadsheet? Well, you're taking disorder and you're putting order into it. You're creating from chaos some sort of level. You're making it better. You're making it more understandable. And there's probably a fellow image bearer of God that's going to receive the benefit of that work. So sometimes we, we remove ourselves one level up to realize, oh, wait, wait, wait. I thought of just how many emails I got. I, don't, I, I use that as an example because I still teach some classes. And I have to remind myself these are image bearers of God that are emailing me these questions that are so clearly on the syllabus, right? And every time I flip that switch, it helps me. It helps me to say, and man, would I have been the worst at 20 years old of just asking 15 questions without reading the syllabus, right? That was just who I was. Probably, so it gives me much more patience to say, these are image bearers of God who are relying upon me, who I can be helpful, who I can care for them, and I'm loving my neighbor by taking the time to respond to these emails rather than feeling annoyed, rather than wishing that they would go away, rather than wishing I could just wash my hands of it. I think this is a this is a really helpful. It's a profoundly uh, the hope is let's say the hope is that by realizing those of us who return to work tomorrow paid employment, the things that God has called me to do, whether I love them or not, is the primary way that I'm going to fulfill on a daily basis that command to love others. It should change the way that we interact with our jobs. And I tell you what it's done for me. And I am not exaggerating. It's changed the way that I appreciate when people care for me as a part of their vocation. So I had a son that worked all summer at Hume Lake. He started at Hume Lake on the grounds team, right? That's not the, the glamorous job at a place. So Hume Lake's a Christian camp, right? Christian evangelical camp. So all summer long, he's picking up trash and mowing and building things. And one of the things that I asked him, I, brought, I picked him up and brought him home yesterday, is how does the fact that you were the trash cleaner-upper and the lawnmower, how did that affect the way that you felt? Because we were always trying to encourage him. He didn't make a lot of money because you don't make a lot of money working at Christian camps. But he was, we were saying, hey, it's a part of Christian ministry, what you're doing. You're allowing people, primarily middle school and high school age kids, to come and be in this beautiful place so that they can hear the Bible taught and some of them become believers because it's not 
full of trash. It doesn't stink. It's not to the point that it's something that they can't stand. I recognize, I, I've said it from teaching this class, when the trash man comes to pick up my trash in my heart, I think, thank you for taking my trash away. Thank you. What would I do if the trash man didn't come pick up my trash? I feel so loved by that trash truck. I feel it. I notice it. I feel so loved by the guys who take care of my lawn. I feel so loved by the person who takes my order. Sometimes they're not as friendly as they could be, but I still I do a good job of reminding myself, well, I'm feeling the care that they're loving me by doing their vocation well. And sometimes it's very clear. Uh, one of a, a dear lady in our church, uh, a dear friend who, who teaches our fifth grade Sunday school class for almost 30 years now, she's basically has an eye condition. Some of you who know medical stuff would know what it is, but her, her, she would be blind by now. If not, for in the last, I believe she told me, in the, only in the last five years, there's a new procedure where they inject a gas into her eye that keeps her vision. Now, I do not know if the person who came up with this procedure was a believer. It doesn't matter, right? How loved she feels by the vocation of medicine that she has sight that she wouldn't have otherwise. But man, wouldn't it be awesome if that person was a Christian? And man, wouldn't it be awesome if that person realized, I am loving my neighbor by helping come up with something that keeps people with sight. It almost makes me emotional how beautiful it is. Something Jesus did when he was on this earth that we can do as humans in some small capacity to love our neighbors well. couple of things I just want to leave off with. Uh, the Bible says a lot more about work. It talks about our labor not being in vain because we're on the winning team. It talks about whatever you do, you do it as unto the Lord. So even when you're being asked, so long as it's not a sinful, anti-biblical task, but it's a task that you feel like is degrading, feel like it's a task that you're not being fully valued for, you can translate that to say, you know what, I'm doing this as unto the Lord. My, ultimately, there's only one audience that I'm trying to please, and it's the Father. I'm going to leave off with a Luther quote um, because he, he did think a lot about this and write about this well. And the quote is set up like this. Um, he's talking about the vocation of being a father and having a young baby. And he talks about how natural reason, that is reason before we start thinking about it from the gospel, would look at some of these tasks as not very satisfying, cleaning diapers and taking care of my wife and all these other things. And so it's actually a longer, uh, there's a long quote, and I, if somebody's interested, I, you can come take a picture of it, uh, because it's kind of funny, because as he's leaning into how bad it is, he's doing a very Lutheran job of it. He's, he's making it sound really, really atrocious. But then he turns in the quote and he says this, what does Christian faith say to this, right? To, to this insignificant, nasty job of taking care of the baby? It opens its eyes. It looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit and is aware they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, Oh God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man and have for my body begotten this child, I also know for certain that it meets your perfect pleasure. I confess to you, I am not worthy to rock this baby or clean its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving your creature 
and your most precious will. Oh, how gladly I will do so. Though the duties should even be more insignificant and despised, neither frost nor heat, drudgery or labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that it is pleasing in your sight. That's beautiful. So whatever that task is that's ahead of us, coming up tomorrow morning, we can view it in the same sense that, oh, wow, God has entrusted us to care for his creatures, his creation, to the point until Jesus comes. So much more I could say, but I'm going to leave it at that and let the Spirit work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your word. I do pray that we would be encouraged in the way that we face the labors that you have for us. Um, and it is a labor, it is a toil, and that's even helpful as well because we know we live in this fallen world until Jesus comes back. So give us the perseverance to trust and in those times where it feels overwhelming to us, which I know it does, that we could say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly.